0: Welcome to Coast Range Radio, a production of the Coast Range Association. I'm your host, Michael Gaskill. Ballots are out for the 2022 general election, and it's no exaggeration to say that this is the most consequential election for Oregonians in years, if not decades. Three out of six of Oregon's seats for the U.S. House of Representatives are considered toss-ups, where either the Democrat or Republican could easily win, and the race for governor is anyone's guess at this point. To put that in perspective republicans haven't held the governor's seat since 1986 and our federal delegation to the u.s house could swing from a four to one democratic majority to a four to two republican majority in the state legislature republican dark money groups are pouring unprecedented money into local state senate and state house races now we at the coast range don't make any endorsements And nothing I'm saying today is intended to favor one candidate over another. But I want to help folks understand the choices that we have and the stakes of this election. Whether we're looking at climate action, forest management, environmental or wildlife protections, women's rights to control their bodies, investments in our rural communities, or really any other issues you care about, the choices we make in this election will have real, tangible impacts. For example... When we have two candidates for governor who embraced timber unity and received millions of dollars in timber industry money, and a third candidate who has the backing of environmentalists and pro-science wildfire experts, we are obviously presented with clear contrasts. There's a lot of great reporting and trustworthy organizations out there to help you understand your choices. And though we'll mainly be talking about the governor's race today, our local elections are deeply impactful to our lives as well. So however you vote, your choice really does matter. that's true with every election, but more so this year than in a long time here in Oregon. So with that in mind, I reached out to Hillary Borod from The Oregonian to learn more about the stakes of the governor's race, and then I spoke with Sidra Pearson from The Rural Organizing Project about their nonpartisan voter guide. I hope you enjoy the show today, and if you know folks that don't plan to vote or are undecided about who to vote for, please talk with them. I've included a bunch of resources in our show notes and on our website at coastrange.org. And as always, I love hearing feedback and show ideas. My email is Michael at coastrange.org.
1: Hilary Borud, I am the state government and politics reporter at the
0: Oregonian. Well, Hillary, thank you so much for talking with us. Welcome to Coast Range Radio. Thanks. Yeah, so I figured we'll spend a lot of time talking today about the governor's race, and I'd like to touch on Measure One Thirteen as well. But just to begin with, could you kind of go over the basics of the governor's race? Uh, you know, kind of lightning round. Who are our candidates and where the race currently stands?
1: Sure. So I think we've got about three weeks or less um, left until the election. I'm not sure exactly what it'll be when this airs, but we've got three main candidates who are running this year, which is unusual. Of course, Um, it's very rare to have a a, um, candidate who has a chance of winning or even can mount a competitive campaign who is not a Republican or a Democrat. Not a major party candidate and so this year we have Betsy Johnson she's running unaffiliated and for a lot of her campaign she had the backing of Nike co-founder Phil Knight who gave her millions of dollars and really boosted her her ability to get her message out there and then she also has had a lot of uh, timber industry supporters and just some other um, businesses from around Oregon um she is a former longtime Democratic state lawmaker, so it's not like she's really an outsider. Um, but she, in terms of how she stood in the legislature, she tended to vote with Democrats a lot of the time, but then on some high profile issues like gun control and environmental bills, she would more often um, side with the Republicans who opposed those policies, and then the other two that we have are, of course, the Democrat and the Republican. Um, Democrat is Tina Kotek. She's a former longtime House Speaker. She is a longtime lawmaker too. Like I'd mentioned, she was the first openly lesbian um, House Speaker in the country. She championed a lot of um, pretty progressive policies or laws that got passed while she was the Speaker of the House, including raising the state's minimum wage. Um, mandating some paid sick leave for workers in Oregon. Um, the, the list could go on from there. And then finally, Christine Drazen, she is the Republican and she was the former House minority leader um, in Oregon since 2019. So she's she was in the legislature for the shortest period of all those candidates, but she's not entirely new to the Capitol either because she worked there as a staffer years ago. And then as a lobbyist, some um, um, Drazen is interesting as well. She led uh, the House Republicans in a walkout to uh, boycott a boycott a climate bill that actually was over in the Senate. So it was a bit more of a protest. It wasn't up for a vote in the House yet. But in 2020, uh, Democrats were trying to come back and try, try again to pass a cap and trade bill um, that had Died the previous year, and um, that's when Drazen led her her caucus in walking out of the house, and it basically ended that session.
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't know if we've ever seen a governor's race like this in Oregon, but it does seem like if the polls are anywhere near accurate, the real race is between Tina Kotek and Christine Drazen. So I kind of want to focus uh, a little more upfront on those two. You know, for our audience, I would say a lot of the key issues for folks are going to be issues like climate action, other associated environmental issues, uh, in particularly forest issues and things like wildfire safety. Um, So with those in mind, I'm wondering what you think the biggest, like actual material differences that people might see in Oregon uh, with a Cotech governorship versus a Drazen governorship,
1: sure well, it it comes down to what can the Governor actually do? I think mm-hmm. so, Tina Kotec, I think we would see most likely a continuation of the status quo on where oregon Oregon leaders have been on their policy on climate change. Um, Kate Brown did adopt an executive order after Republicans killed uh, Democrats' second attempt to pass the cap and trade plan in 2020. And Drazen and Johnson have said that if they are elected, they will tear up Kate Brown's um, climate change executive order. KOTAC would continue it. Um, And just looking at ways to reduce carbon emissions wherever um, state government agencies can. Another thing that Drazen has said that she would put on hold, um, or stop if she could is Oregon's clean fuels law, um, which has been, it was on the books for, I think about a decade and then it got renewed or made permanent back in 2015. Um, that, that just tries to lower our emissions from transportation by subsidizing, um, subsidizing modes of transit that have some renewable fuels involved. So so those are two big policies that I know Drazen would, um, would handle very differently than COTEC. We could also see some changes in how the state regulates um, regulates forests, although I I don't know the details of exactly how that would work because, again, I'm not the reporter that focuses on our forestry management out of the state. Uh, regulatory bodies, but Johnson and Drazen are both pretty keen to increase management of the forests.
0: Right. AKA increase uh, harvesting of board feet. Um, Yeah.
1: And I don't know how much they'd be able to, through the Board of Forestry, affect um, some of the the protections along streams and stuff, for example. So that's, that's the question is, what does a governor have executive power to do um, like I know they they have some on the climate change policies versus what would you have to have an existing state law or regulation regulation uh, changed by lawmakers?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And so maybe now would be a good time to focus a little more on Christine Drazen. Um, so Republicans have the best shot that they've had in decades. At taking the governorship in Oregon, and I want to ask you a little bit about what that would actually look like. Um, first, I just want to preface—you know—it is important to to note, and folks can can easily Google, you know, where candidates get their funding from. Um, it looks like the second largest campaign contributor by sector to Drazen's campaign is the timber industry, and uh, she has been endorsed by Timber Unity as well. Um, so with with those in mind, you know, her stance on timber is going to be, let's, let's log more, let's um, log as a measure to prevent wildfires, which is obviously very controversial um, and not necessarily supported by some of the best available science. But so let's imagine a scenario where Christine Drazen wins the governorship but the Democrats keep control of the state legislature. I'm curious from your perspective what that will mean for any forward-looking legislation. How far does the governor's veto uh, authority extend? You know, would we be looking at a situation where maybe she's not able to undo very much, but we're just not able to make forward progress on legislation
1: Yeah, certainly, um, any governor can veto legislation either as a line item where they would veto, um, say a, a specific, a specifically called out spending item in a bill, or they could veto an entire bill. Um, Kate Brown has done that in some cases, as far as how, you know, the governor does have some control over how agencies are, um. If they have to write administrative rules to implement a law, for example, they could have some role in that. So I suppose that's another way that the governor could get involved. Um, But yeah, that's and I don't know what the next um, big, broad environmental law is on the horizon that groups are, are trying to get passed after. The negotiated forest laws that got passed since Kate Brown was governor, there is an issue of how Oregon's going to move forward on wildfire protections and preparing for more wildfires in the future. As you know, that that's been really controversial um, once it's come to implementation and the the maps for um, wildfire risk areas were put on hold, and I think they're, they're getting revisited.
0: Right. So obviously, this is a atypical election year in Oregon, and a lot of folks that would typically vote Democrats are frustrated with Oregon's government, and, and Kate Brown in particular it, is very unpopular as governor. How would a Tina Kotak governorship differ from Brown's tenure?
1: Well, that, that's an interesting question. Tina Kotek's trying to make the case right now that she would also differ from Kate Brown in terms of her effectiveness in actually carrying out policies that um, Democratic voters who elected her wanted to see, um, and maybe beyond even Democratic voters. For example, the state um, has has messed up the launch of its paid family and medical leave law that's pretty broadly, um, popular and, uh, Kotex saying that she would do a better job rolling things out and and making government work for people than Kate Brown has, has done. Um, I don't know what, um, what else she's got in in the bag, you know, as potential environmental policies going into the future.
0: Well, um, if we have time for one more question, I'd love to ask you real quick about Measure 113, a statewide ballot measure. Mm-hmm. And and that was put forward in response to a series of Republican walkouts blocking climate action and other major legislation. It's not getting a ton of attention, but it's been described to me as one of the most important items on the ballot for Oregonians. Could you talk about briefly the the why of this bill and what it would mean for the ability of the legislature to actually move legislation forward?
1: Sure. Well, measure 113 would amend the state constitution. And as I'd written about last week, it would, it would uh, basically punish lawmakers who have, I believe it's at least 10 unexcused absences and the The legislative leaders in the majority party would decide basically they already make the decisions on who gets an excused absence. Um, and the goal is to just make it uh, less feasible or less appealing to walk out to stop work or stop voting on bills in the legislature as Republicans have done multiple times starting in 2019. Democrats used it in the past. I think it was 2001 when they walked out to Kill some Republican um, redistricting plans because Oregon lawmakers redraw our our boundaries of our districts where we um, elect elect our representatives every decade. Um, It would punish lawmakers who walk out or who have unexcused absences. Just to be clear, it wouldn't say walk out; it would say unexcused absence in the amended constitution. Um, It would punish them by forbidding them from or preventing them from holding office next time they
0: would be elected. Right. Well, Hillary, thank you so much for talking with me today. And uh, folks can find your excellent reporting at OregonLive.com and The Oregonian. Do you have a a Twitter or anything that you want folks to follow?
1: Oh, sure. If people are interested, um, it's just at HGORUD on Twitter. But you're going to see the most of my most of my writing and most of the information about the election on OregonLive.com.
0: All right. Well, yeah, like I say, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I, I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, sure. Nice to meet you, Michael.
2: My name is Sidra, and I am an organizer with the Rural Organizing Project.
0: Great. Well, Sidra, welcome to Coast Range Radio. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: To start with, could you just give a brief intro to the Rural Organizing Project, uh, you know, the work and mission?
2: Absolutely. So, ROP was founded 30 years ago. Uh, as part of a response to a homophobic ballot measure in the 90s, and Marcy Westerling, our founder, uh, was really insistent that rural communities be a part of the campaign to push back against Measure 9. Uh, Started traveling the state, meeting with folks who wanted to organize around this, and our model of the Rural Organizing Project came out of that work in the 90s, and we became a network of local autonomous human dignity groups. So, Today, our structure is a statewide organization that supports a multi-issue, rural-centered, grassroots base in Oregon. And we have over 80 human dignity groups. And our mission is to strengthen the skills, resources, and vision of the primary leadership in these autonomous human dignity groups with the goal of keeping such groups a vibrant source for a just democracy.
0: Beautiful. And I've asked you here today, uh primarily to talk about you all's election resource guide. So could you talk a little bit about the STAND uh, election guide, you know, kind of what it is, how long you've all been putting it out?
2: Absolutely. So the the STAND election guide, which stands for Small Town Actions for a New Democracy, Um, is a newsprint election guide that we've been putting out since the early 2000s. And these guides are made by and for rural Oregonians every election year to use a tool for talking with their neighbors and to candidates to make sure we're using the power of our votes to advance democracy. Um, So the goal of the guide is to break down in really simple plain language who can vote and how, what's on the ballot this year, types of questions we can be asking candidates to make sure they're representing our values and really just cutting through election rhetoric and and being able to make those decisions to advance democracy.
0: Yeah. And I love how you've laid that out, really breaking it down into really simple, you know, visuals without kind of uh, dumbing it down. You know, I know just a lot of folks just don't necessarily always understand the difference between a state representative and a federal representative or or what their county commissioner actually does. And you've all done a really good job of highlighting, you know, who represents you, key ballot measures, kind of how to vote. Could you talk a little bit about kind of some of the key parts that you decided to include in the stand guide?
2: Definitely. Yeah. So we, we decide what to include in the stand guide every year by having conversations with local leaders around the state about what what issues heading into election season are are feeling most pressing in their communities or that there's misinformation about and that would be useful to have. Um, so that's how we kind of narrow down. And so like I mentioned we always include these sample questions for candidates to make sure that voters can be going out and determining for themselves whether candidates would represent their community's priorities and values. Um, and we also lay out, like you were saying, like who are we voting for? So we know this November we're voting for all of our state and U.S. representatives, governor, many state senators. Um, and then we're also voting down the ballot for local candidates like mayor, city councilor, county sheriff, county commissioner, circuit court judge. And we also include information about what, what are the decisions that these people are making? So we know that they're going to be making decisions ranging from what's taught in our public schools to which social services get funded and which get cut. And so really laying out why voting all the way down the ballot is is so important. And then another big part of what's in the guide is information about statewide ballot measures. And this year, I think it's a really exciting election year. Our uh, board actually endorsed all four statewide ballot measures, and they tackle really important issues like health care and community safety and accountability for elected officials. So we include a lot of information about those measures and not only what they do, but using uh, democracy as a framework and saying, would these measures advance democracy in our community?
0: Yeah, I was really glad to to see that you all took a stance on those ballot measures, and I know you all haven't endorsed any candidates, but one thing I'm trying to do with this episode is kind of highlight the real-world stakes of this election. I'm wondering if you could just kind of highlight what you feel like the stakes are of this election, whether it's you personally or ROP's work in general.
2: Yeah as I was, as we were talking about, there are so many issues that are directly on the ballot through ballot measures, as well as by choosing what candidates you're, you're supporting. Uh, one issue that we've been hearing a lot from local leaders that is feeling really important is housing and how unaffordable it is right now. And that's a chance, this is a chance to be electing candidates that are going to be um, addressing that issue in our communities. And on the stand guide, actually, we have the when you open it up. The main page is this map of Oregon with an infographic of um, the percentage of families that are rent burdened in every county. Um, so that means that they're paying more than thirty percent of their monthly income on on housing, which is obviously completely unaffordable. Um, so that's a real issue across the state and something that we can all be asking candidates: What are you going to be doing to make sure that people can afford to to live in these communities. And that's obviously a huge part of having this shared standard of human dignity is, is it affordable to live and thrive in our communities? So that's just one example of something that we're all voting for um, this election season. Uh, One of the ballot measures that's really exciting is measure uh, one eleven, which is would add affordable and accessible health care into the Oregon Constitution as a fundamental right. So That's another example of we can really be using this November election as a chance to be advancing human dignity
0: absolutely. And I'm glad that you brought up uh, that infograph that you that you all included about, you know, how many Oregonians are rent burdened, what percentage per county. And that to me, was shocking to see. Just how high? I mean, where I live in Lincoln County, I believe the figure was like 52% of of renters are paying more than 30%. Next door in Benton County, we have 61% of renters paying over 30%. So I just want to say that was uh, really enlightening for me. So I appreciate you all including that. And I agree that that's a really important question to be asking of candidates is how are they going to make progress on on that issue.
2: Definitely. And I also just wanted to add, you know, part of, you are saying you you saw the stand guide and immediately that really jumped out at you. And that's part of what these stand election guides are for, is not only informing ourselves as individuals, but starting conversations with each other and with neighbors. Um, So a lot of the groups in our network use stand guides every year as part of their election organizing plans. And that includes going around and knocking on neighbors' doors and offering them as a resource um, and not just passing them off, but actually starting a conversation and maybe forming a relationship that carries past the election season.
0: I love that. So how can how can people get a hold of this guide? Uh, you know, how do you distribute it? Where do people find it, etc.?
2: Yeah, so our order deadline is passed but luckily you can still order stand guides we have a lot of extras in our offices and you can do that by just emailing us directly at office at rop.org and we can get in touch and figure out how to get you some stand guides in the mail you can also find a digital version of the stand guide on our website at rop.org/ stand um, and there's more information about the content there. Uh, as well as a PDF version. Uh, But the best way if you want some paper stand guides in either English or Spanish is to to email us. The idea is for it to be supporting groups and what you feel like is going to be effective in your community. So feel free to reach out to us again, office at rop.org, not only to order stand guides, but also just to chat about your election organizing plan. And we can offer support Um, however, I also encourage folks to just check out our website, ROP.org. You can sign up for our updates that we, uh, send out to the network and just learn more ways to get involved.
0: Yeah. Well, that was going to be my last question and you already got to it. So (laughs) instead, I guess I'll ask, uh, you know, aside from this election, um, what kind of work are you doing that you're excited about? What's ROP up to these days?
2: Yeah, so groups across the network are active on a lot of different campaigns. Recently, groups have been organizing to protect inclusive library books and school curriculum, as we're seeing that students and public education are facing a lot of attacks. Um, Others are doing direct action organizing around Black Lives Matter, gun safety, reproductive justice, um, and so much more.
0: Awesome. Well, Sidra, thank you so much for joining us on Coast Range Radio today.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: That's our show. Thanks so much for listening today. Please be a voter. Talk to your friends, family, colleagues, whoever, about why this election is important to you. And if you want to support what we're doing, share this show with a friend. You can learn more about the work and mission of the Coast Range Association at coastrange.org. Thanks again. Talk to you soon.